love for you to take your Bibles now and turn with me uh, to the book of John, chapter 18. And as we're turning to John, chapter 18, what we've been doing in this four-part series during the Advent season is this. We've been exploring the phrases that Jesus Christ has been using to describe his entrance to this world. Again and again, he makes statements such as, I was sent to, or I came to. Now, when he makes those statements, it's simply because he is stating that he existed before Bethlehem. He is the second member of the Trinity. He's the preexistent one. And so Bethlehem was not his starting point, but it was an entry point into this world. So with that in mind now, you and I are going to be asking ourselves a serious question. Why then, in this passage of Scripture, does John speak of Jesus? For the only time in the Scriptures as having been born. And would, why would Jesus choose to use the word born in conversation with Pontius Pilate? Those are the questions I want you to begin to ponder now as I begin reading in John chapter 18. And as we begin reading, look very carefully at the mission statement that Jesus Christ delivers for you and for me. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And by now it was early morning. To avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. And this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Do you think I am a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people, your chief priests, who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Here it comes. Jesus answered, You are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. And with this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. 
and now Barabbas had taken part in rebellion. Now, astoundingly, in this passage of Scripture that inches you towards the cross of Jesus Christ, you have one of the most powerful statements as to why Bethlehem, why Christmas, why Jesus entered this world. And so we're going to pull together the cradle and the cross, connect the dots, and see where this leads us as we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, you know the needs of the hearts here, and you know the issues we face. And as we're approaching that time in which we, on Christmas Day, commemorate our Savior's entrance into this world, we want to give you thanks for who you are and what you've done, for how you've worked and how you're working. So, Father, we want to be engaged with your word, as we are engaged with the one, Father, who died for our sins. So speak to our hearts now, Father, and engage our minds. So once again, we've come here now to see Jesus, him only. So praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who love golf will appreciate this presidential anecdote. That evidently one of golf's immortal moments came when a Scotsman arrived in the United States of America to provide a demonstration of the game of golf, in particular to President Ulysses S. Grant. The writer tells us, carefully placing the ball on the tee, he took a mighty swing. And the club hit the turf, scattered dirt all over the president's beard and surrounding vicinity, while the ball placidly waited still on that tee. Again the Scotsman swung, and again he missed. And the president evidently waited through six swings. Until finally, the Scotsman, in frustration, looked up in the air, just off into the distance beyond the president's head, in which President Grant then quietly stated, there seems to be a fair amount of exercise for the arms and shoulders in this game. But looking down at the tee, he said, but I fail to see the purpose of that ball. My concern with our American culture is that increasingly we're failing to see the purpose of Christmas. They don't quite understand so many of the significance of this movement through Bethlehem in order to get to Calvary and beyond. So what we're going to do, once again, is that we're going to be looking at the mission statement, the purpose statement, the reason why Jesus Christ entered this world. But once again, we're going to do it by allowing for ourselves to understand, we'll understand better with the end in mind. In other words, Calvary has a way of shining backwards upon the cradle. Calvary illuminates Bethlehem, you see. 
So what we're going to do is to draw three significant observations, each of which is wrapped around a particular movement of Pontius Pilate back and forth between the Jewish accusers and Jesus Christ himself. Three observations that I think will help us to better equip ourselves to be able to minister effectively for God's glory. Here's the first. It's found in verse 28 down through verse 32. I want you to notice with me, first of all, the word that Christ fulfilled. And we're going to be drawing this directly from the passage of Scripture we're now examining. So, in verse 28, it's Jesus. And he has been through the course of the night, enduring various Jewish trials. Legal Jewish trials, in an illegal sense of the word. And their verdict, after three particular trials, is that Jesus Christ is guilty of blasphemy. Claiming to be the Son of God. But here's their problem, you see. They lack jurisdiction. They lack legal right to be able to put him to death. The Romans now are the ones that control that portion of real estate in this world. So they're going to have to relabel their verdict in order for the Roman authorities then to push forward this case towards the death penalty. And so they determined that the best way then for this to be interpreted and understood in the Roman courts is to argue that Jesus Christ is an insurrectionist, a rival of Caesar, claiming to be a king. After all, he had professed himself to be the Christ. So with that in mind now, and the Jewish trials having come to an end, their Jewish officials begin to inch forward towards Pilate. In verse 28, the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas, the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. Now, Pilate positioned himself in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover for this very reason. He was concerned about the potential for riots to be occurring. And so he wanted to be able to have control he is now in the Roman palace within the city of Jerusalem. I want you to see the hypocrisy and the irony unfolding in what's stated next. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now bear in mind that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Passover. In Genesis chapter 22, Isaac turns to his father Abraham and says, Father, where is the lamb? The Baptist by the name of John in chapter 1 points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb. In the book of Revelation, there is this chorus that in unison cries out, Worthy is the Lamb. Everything now is pointing in direction of the One who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here the sins of the world is about to put the Lamb of God to death. 
while at the same time wanting to be religiously, ceremoniously pure to be able to carry on the tradition of eating the Passover lamb. Do you begin to see the irony here? The hypocrisy here? And there's Jesus, the Lamb of God, in their midst. And they miss the one in the midst. And what's interesting is that if you and I were to be tutored in the language of Chinese, we'd be informed that the Chinese character for righteousness is this. It's composed of two separate characters, one which stands for a lamb, the other for the person. And when a lamb is placed directly above me, a new character, righteousness, is formed. But in Chinese, if I am placed above the lamb, a new character, unrighteousness, is formed. Now, what you and I see here is a tremendous conflict beginning to emerge. Who is above who? Is the Lamb above me? Or am I above the Lamb? You see, the hypocrisy here at this point is that they are placing themselves above the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But in the book of Revelation, the people who gather together to sing in unison are acknowledging the fact that the Lamb is above us. Notice the tension. Notice the irony. Notice the conflict. And Jesus Christ is being brought in, of at all times, Passover, into the presence of where? Jerusalem. So now, in the next verse, what we find is that because they do not want to become ceremonially unclean and enter into the palace of the Gentile, Pilate, as the prefect, is going to have to go out and meet them. Pilate comes out to them, and you and I find in this very next verse, he poses this question, what charges are you bringing against this man? Don't underestimate what he's saying here at this point. What he is doing now is he is opening up a formal procedure the Jewish officials had assumed all along he would simply rubber stamp this matter. After all, he had allowed evidently for Roman soldiers to accompany these officials into Gethsemane to bring Jesus out from that setting for trial purposes. He knew in advance what was coming his way. That's why they don't have to just simply stir him, get him up. He's already prepared for their, for their coming. But there's tremendous tension as the enactment drew out for us between Pilate and the Jews. In fact, in, if you read Luke chapter 13, verse 1, you will find that Pilate, in one of his decisions, had mingled Galilean blood with sacrifices. There is tremendous conflict here between Pilate, the Roman prefect, 
and the Jewish leaders. They must take a step back at this point. When he opens up this procedure, it's a formal question. What charges are you bringing against this man? You might remember through the month of October, I was involved in jury duty. In the very first case, I walked into the jury room after they narrowed down who's going to be on it, and then before I could drink my coffee, I had been chosen to be chairman. When I sat down at the table and began to guide the jurists through the process, the first question that was posed to me was, um, do you think that the world is going to end December 21st? And immediately I was beginning to ponder within my own mind the fascination of the so-called separation of church and state with the senior pastor guiding this process. Well, now. Here we find the religious and the secular colliding. Their response in verse 30 is this. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Notice that was their answer to his question, what charges are you bringing against this man? In other words, he's looking for specifics. What do they deliver to him? Generalities. As a matter of fact, what they're basically doing is saying, trust us, you see. But isn't that why he is positioning himself in Jerusalem at this particular time? Because he doesn't trust them? Do you see the ironies that are emerging here now in these verses? So now, Pilate continues on. And evidently, and he, he's beginning to provoke them, draw them out a little more. Pilate in verse 31 said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now here's the thing. They had determined in advance to execute Jesus. We find that in John where after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, they plotted against Jesus for the purpose of killing him. So already they had predetermined the outcome of the so-called um, fair trial system. Now, here's the thing. Pilate's calling their bluff. Because Pilate knows they do not have legal rights to execute only the civil authorities do. Rome now has control of Palestine. So now he calls their bluff and they respond in return, but we have no right to execute anyone. And he draws it right out. He's already shown what they are seeking. Execution without even a fair judicial process. He's a savvy man, you see. But then something else stands out to you, stands out to me. It's verse 32. John, the writer, interjects these thoughts, guided by the Holy Spirit. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Now, our first major observation is note 
the word Christ fulfilled. What is it that he fulfilled? Notice carefully what appears on the screen at this point. Three significant statements where Christ utters something pertaining to what's about to occur here. John chapter 3, verse 14. Look at this. And so the Son of Man must be lifted up. The lifting up would be the cross being lifted up publicly in the eyes of everyone else. Look at John chapter 8, verse 28. Let that appear now on the screen. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. And thirdly, because Jesus loves triplicate evidently, John chapter 12, verse 32, for when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Couple that with the triplicate of Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, where there are three significant announcements of the way in which Jesus Christ would be flogged and so forth and then handed over to the civil authorities. And Matthew 20, in fact, informs us that he tells them and crucified. He knew exact details with regard to the outcome before the judicial processes unfolded. In other words, what I'm saying here now at this point is that Jesus Christ had the cross in mind even in the cradle situation of Bethlehem. Chuck Colson in his brilliant book, Kingdoms in Conflict. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. So pertinent to even this particular scene. Tells the story of the of the government of Polish Prime Minister Jaruzelski during the days of communism. He had ordered crucifixes removed from classroom walls, just as they had been banned from factories and hospitals and other public institutions. Now, there were parents who disagreed, fought against this, and at night would go back into the classrooms and hang the crosses back on the walls. Now, most of these school administrators relented, but there was one in particular who was utterly committed then to having the crosses removed. One evening, he had seven large crucifixes removed, Colson tells us, from lecture halls where they had hung since the school's founding in the 20s. But days later, groups of parents entered the school and hung still more crosses, and this went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The next day, two-thirds of the school's 600 students staged a sit-in. When heavily armed riot police arrived, the students were forced into the streets. And then they marched with crosses held high to a nearby church where they were joined by 2,500 other students from nearby schools for morning prayer. Imagine that in the U.S. in support of the protest. Soldiers surrounded the church. But the pictures from inside of students holding crosses high above their heads flashed on newscasts around the world. 
as the pastor who was delivering the message that day to the congregation stated, quote, there will be no Poland without a cross, unquote. And we might add, there is no Christianity without a cross because a crossless Christianity is not Christianity. And the cross, in essence, is hanging over that cradle. As Jesus, now in triplicate form, has delivered this astounding perspective on what was coming his way. So we've noted, first of all, the word that Christ fulfilled from 28 down through verse 32. But next, and I want you to notice very carefully what comes next. Secondly, notice with me the reason Christ came, beginning in verse 33 onward. Now Pilate turns his attention to Jesus. Goes back inside the palace. Is there irony there? Who's the real king? And where is the real palace? And he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, what fascinates us is the way in which Jesus answers questions. He typically answers questions with questions. And I don't think Pilate was used to somebody responding in this way. Normally, he would give, be given answers, not questions. But Jesus, in turn, in verse 34, asks, Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Which is very similar, in fact, to what Jesus Christ did with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, when he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And then Simon Peter made it personal. And now what Jesus Christ wants to do is to get personal with Pilate. Are you personal with Jesus? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people. Notice he distances himself. Your chief priests who handed you over to me. Very same Greek word, by the way, which is used in one of Jesus Christ's statements in his announcements in Mark 8, 9, and 10, that after the Jewish trials, he would be handed over, you see, to the Gentiles. Now it literally happens. I mean, you are seeing words, prophecies, promises fulfilled and unfolding brilliantly here before our very eyes. But you see, Romans are very practical people. The Greeks, they were philosophical and the Romans took the philosophies and applied them. So Pilate's got a question now. What is it you have done? Verse 36. 
Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Which means then that the Roman political system is not the source of my kingdom. The Jewish religious system is not the source of my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. Which now Pilate is going to have to try to figure out where this fits in and what paradigm you use when you talk to somebody like this who says my kingdom is not of this world. He did not say my kingdom is not in this world. Because in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus Christ had declared the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. But Jesus Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. And now you see the problem that Jesus had with Peter in Gethsemane. When Peter took the ear off of Malchus and Jesus healed that man on the spot. Jesus is saying that this kingdom is a whole different realm. It's from above. If you study the book of John very carefully, you will be astounded at the usage of above and below in the way in which John speaks of matters pertaining to Jesus Christ in relationship to this world. But now my kingdom is from another place. So now Pilate declares, you are a king, then said Pilate. And now you and I go back to Magi. Who in Matthew chapter 2, which is so often taught at Christmas Eve services, appear on the scene, Gentiles, and pose this question, where? Jerusalem. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now, where is Jesus Christ standing in John chapter 18? Jerusalem. And now we have another Gentile speaking of the idea of Jesus Christ being King of the Jews. Are we connecting the dots? And Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, the setting of David. And what was the tremendous promise God delivered to David in 2 Samuel 7? Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So that when Jesus Christ has King of the Jews placed above his head, you and I still have to be thinking about forever. Which means resurrection is on our hands. If this kingdom is forever. Because this kingdom is not of this world. Do you see the powerful, powerful linkage that's occurring here? Dot, dot, dot. The connecting of the dots as you are moving. You see from Old Testament on through the New Testament, the promise to David with regard to this enduring, everlasting kingdom. David of Bethlehem. Where is Jesus registered? Bethlehem. Where do Magi appear on the scene? Jerusalem. 
and then move on to Bethlehem, they go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem as Jesus moves from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. You are a king then, said Pilate. Look at Jesus' answer. You are right in saying, I am a king. But now what I want us to see is what comes next. Jesus said, in fact, for this reason I was born. Camp on that for a second. Why does Jesus make this statement? For this reason I was born. Everywhere else, he says, I came to, or I was sent to. This is the only time, he says, I was born. What's the difference? In all the other settings, he was talking to Jewish religious people. This is a Gentile secular person. You got to know your starting point when you're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pilate just needs a starting point. So now Jesus, knowing the framework, the worldview of the pilots of this world, says, Okay, for this reason I was born, but in process, he is basically saying, This then affirms the humanity of Christ. But what I want you to notice is that it does not. And there, he has more to say. He's got more to say. And do you see it? And for this, I came into the world. Now, notice that second phrase. For this, I came into the world. That's the deity of Christ. He was born. Humanity. He came. Deity. Two natures, one person. Why then was he born of a woman? Humanity. Why was he conceived through the work of the Holy Spirit? Divinity. Two natures, one person. Because you need that combination for the perfect sacrifice on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is astounding. He is giving us perspective on Bethlehem that will so enrich our hearts and minds and souls. We should forever now have purposeful Christmases. Then he adds, to testify to the truth. Do you see that next phrase that appears? Which is a fulfillment, by the way, of Isaiah 55, verse 4. And what is the truth? That Jesus Christ is king. Jesus Christ is king. And so when he reaches that point then of being hung on that cross, and you and I look at that statement that is hanging over his head on that cross, it reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and it was a Gentile who had it placed over his head in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, so that everyone would get it. You see? 
The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 21. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. And now we've got Magi in Bethlehem. We've got Pilate here in Jerusalem. We've got Gentiles proclaiming gospel. And all of this is coming together. And the truth is, he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so now here's Pilate, and he flippantly asks, what's truth? And doesn't pause to process. Even though Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And in John 8, verse 32, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So you come to this third and final scene, and it's your third observation. Note with me quickly now the verdict that Christ received. With this he went out, Pilate did, again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. We wish he would have stopped right there, but then again we don't, because we need him to die for our sins, don't we? God is sovereign over this whole thing, and so he allows for Pilate then in the next verse to say, but, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover, the sacrifices of the lambs. Now notice his sarcasm, his subtlety, and yet reality. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Connect Magi to Pilate. They shout it back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. And the name Barabbas means literally son of the Father. But so is Jesus. Barabbas is son of the earthly father. Jesus is son of the heavenly father. And then John adds, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion and insurrectionist, which is the very accusation that had been made against Jesus. And so the non-insurrectionist will become the substitute for the insurrectionist. And all of this is tying together as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when you and I begin to ponder this, and we consider the significance of this, our minds are drawn back then to that powerful statement in Revelation chapter 19. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Purpose. A purposeful king. And now we see Magi starting in Jerusalem and moving to Bethlehem. Jesus moves from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to meet Pilate. The dots are connected and the purpose is established. Jesus Christ our Savior, our Lord. Let's stand together.
Father, if we follow the flow, if we connect the dots, we should be in awe. There should be such a stirring in our hearts as we now begin to see the commonality of Magi and Pilate. When we see the connection of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, we see how the idea of kingship flows from Old through New Testament to today. So when we feel frustrated by political systems and overwhelmed by world turmoil, we lift our eyes upward and we see the one who still reigns. And for this, Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.